Welcome to Mythsterhood of the Traveling Tales. Join us as we roar the heavens and swim the seas in search of the spectacular and magical. Like the Hydra of Greek lore, our fangs can raise the dead, bringing lost skeletons back to life for an episode or two. But unlike our three-headed friend, we're not guarding the door to the underworld. No, we're blasting it wide open and inviting you to come explore with us. Hello, hello, misters, and welcome to episode 25 of Misterhood of the Travelling Tales. I'm back this week, um, and with me today is Koji. Hello, hello. <laughs> um, so we're going to continue exploring North American dragons for one more week, but first we've got some housekeeping to get out of the way. We are terribly sorry for the delay, um, but it has been a sort of very strange conflagration of timelines and time zones and work schedules that made it impossible for us to record. We do apologize and um, we hope to keep ourselves on track for the rest of the season. Not that that is going to be much longer, sadly. Oh, we're almost done. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun doing all of this, but I sort of, I dread coming to the end of the season because I don't want to stop meeting new dragons. Mm, so true. Yeah, you you guys can't see this, but I am pouting very much right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, speaking of coming to the end of the season, though, mm -hmm. we do have something that we're hoping to do between seasons that might get a few more dragons for you, Jazz. Oh, um, do tell. So if there are any authors who are in our audience out there who have stories about dragons published, either stories or novels, poetry, we would love to have a conversation with you about your inspiration for these stories and your research for these stories and how much is drawn from real mythology and how much is drawn from your own imagination. So we'd like to put out a call for any authors that have written dragon stories to contact us if you would like to be interviewed or have a blog post about your work. Absolutely. You can find us on our Discord server. You can find us on Twitter at um, just our handle there is Mythsterhood. Um, and you can reach us at our email address, mrhood at gmail.com. Of course, we will include all links to those in the show notes. Do reach out if you're interested. Um, I promise we'll have fun and we don't usually bite. Unless asked. <laughs> Good point, yes. Unless it's consensual, <laughs> which I do not expect on a podcast interview. Um, so... One more thing concerning the end of the season, we do still have our end of season collaborative poem going on the Discord server. Um, we might be heading to a close right now unless someone hops in and like <sighs> brings a new twist to the poem. Um, if you like poetry games, come and check it out. You still have a little chance to get in. Um, but yeah, just come hang out on Discord. It's fun, even if you don't join the poetry game. And then also, Jazz, I think you have an exciting new project coming up that maybe you would like to mention now. Um, I might, yes. I'm starting another podcast because 
two wasn't enough just yet. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I've never mentioned my second podcast on here yet because it is something silly, um, but it's basically me journaling in audio format. Um, those who want to hear me ramble about my writing journey and coo to my dogs and pets and get some horse noises in the background head on over to my website and you will find all the links there. I will include them in the show notes as well. But this new project is actually, um, it's called Into the Looking Glass and it is a podcast focused on speculative poetry. And Koji, you are one of the inaugural poets, aren't you? I am, I am. It was so much fun. Yeah, the interview is already recorded, but Koji will be one of the two uh, poets that get an episode released on August 1st, because on release day, I thought I would do something special and do a double episode. And yeah, do come and check that out. Um, Into the Looking Glass, you can already subscribe to the feed and listen to a first trailer. I will include that link in the show notes as well. There's going to be a lot of links in there. Anyway. Oh, yeah, so many links. Yeah. All the links. Um, those interested in discovering Cody's favorite cocktail also would do well to check out Into the Looking Glass. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've tried one, and one they're really yum, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you tried one. Yeah, I did. But, I mean, we can't give away which one it is. Um, mm, no, they'll have to listen for that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's get to business. Um... But Koji, you do have a little disclaimer for us. As always, our usual disclaimer, the names in this episode are a little bit easier to pronounce than they were uh, in the last episode, but I've still struggled to find many of the proper pronunciations. So we apologize for the mistakes we make, and if any of our listeners have the correct pronunciations, please, please feel free to write in and share. Right, so with that out of the way, where do we start? Well, last episode we covered North American dragons from the Aztec, Mayan, and Popol Vol, mostly in what's modern Mexico and Guatemala. This week we're trekking north to what is currently the United States and Canada, and looking at both indigenous myths and the spread of European mythology in North America. Oh, interesting. So you and Annika concentrated a lot on feathered serpents in our last episode. And from what I can see, it looks that as we go north, we get more horned serpents. Mm -hmm. A lot of horned serpents. And we're going to start out with one called Amholuk. And Amholuk was a horned serpent of the Kalapoe people of the Willamette River in northwestern Oregon. There isn't much in the way of description, but he's spotted and has long spotted horns on his head. He has four hairless legs and carries various items tied to his body. He also keeps several spotted dogs to do his bidding. So I'm seeing a theme with the spots here. You think? <laughs> I do. <laughs> But what we lack in knowledge of his appearance is made up for in what we do know about the legends surrounding his powers. Apparently, Amhalak is associated with drowning, disease, and malaria. 
Everything he sees drowns in the lake that he inhabits. Even the trees and sky sink into the muddy water, and the slimy banks of the lake trap all kinds of animals. Especially bears, who are known to go to Amhuluk's lake to die. They enter the water and are changed into other animals, most often an otter. His most famous legend involves three young children who went to the mountain to search for a route and saw Amhaluk coming out of the water. They thought his spotted horns were beautiful and wanted to steal them to make digging tools out of them. But Amhuluk had different plans. He impaled the two younger children, lifting them up on his horns. The oldest boy escaped and ran to tell his father. His parents noticed he had splotches all over his body. The father went to the lake to search for the two other children and saw them rising out of the water on Amhuluk's horns, shouting, We have changed bodies. They did this for five nights and then were never seen again. So that's a dark story to start with, but I think it really sets the tone for the northern part of North America. Most of the serpent stories portrayed evil or negative spirits, as opposed to Asian or even the stories we covered in our last episode in the southern part of North America. Some of these tales were used as a type of boogeyman to keep children in check, right? Yeah, I suppose you aren't going to wander too far into the forest if there's a giant dragon waiting to impale you. What's really interesting, though, is there were similar stories throughout the surrounding areas, all the way to the Paiute in Utah. Right, but not all horned serpents are the same. The Zuni people of what is now the southwest United States had a serpent called Kolowisi, the serpent of the sea. Neighboring Hopi people call this creature the Palulukan. This was an enormous serpent with gleaming scales and horns on his head. He had a large mouth and fins that ran the length of his body. He was so large, he had to coil himself to fit into a room and he mostly lived in deep springs or pools. Supposedly, he was the chief of the Coco Spirits, which controlled rain and lightning. Although he was a horned serpent, he could transform into other animals. One of the main legends surrounding Coloisi was used as a warning to keep young women from going to the springs alone. In this story, there was a priest chief who had a beautiful daughter who couldn't stand to be dirty. She even lived in a separate room from her family and spent most of her time at a spring at the edge of the village, washing herself and her clothing. But the spring she used, called the Pool of the Apaches, was sacred to Kolowisi. He decided to punish her for constantly contaminating his water, so he turned himself into a baby boy that she found next to the spring. She couldn't leave him to die, so she took him home and, without telling her family, she played with the baby for several hours before falling asleep next to him. At that point, Kolowisi took his true form, placed his head next to hers and encircled her with his coils. When the family tried to wake her, they saw the giant serpent. The father pleaded with Kolowisi, promising him he would atone for his daughter's mistakes if he could see her again. 
Kolowisi released the girl, making the entire village tremble as he moved in the room. Then the sacred council prepared offerings for Kolowisi, which the girl had to deliver. The offerings included herself. She had to leave her home and family and live with Kolowisi in the waters of the world. She was dressed in fine, elaborate clothes, as if for a dance, but the people around her mourned instead of celebrating. Then she set off for a distant spring known as the Doorway of the Serpent of the Sea. As she left, Kolowisi lay his head on her shoulder and slowly uncurled himself from her room. It wasn't until they passed over the mountain that he had completely uncurled himself. As soon as his body was free, he transformed into a beautiful young man in ceremonial dress. However, she kept her eyes down and didn't notice the change. When she finally looked up and saw him, she didn't believe he was Kolowisi, but he showed her his shriveled scales beneath his clothing to prove who he was. He asked her to return to his land with him, and they married, living together in the waters of the world. You know, I'm not really sure how that's a warning for young women. It seems she got this handsome god for a husband. I think I would be down at the springs all the time. I would be racing you. <laughs> to the springs. <laughs> oh. So this... Reminds me a lot of the stories about Monyohe from South Africa. Right, right. It sounds really similar to that. Yeah, I mean, we've had some some um, shapeshifters before, but nothing quite this this um, this close in 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 like plot or storyline or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating that. Um Stories can be so similar when they're so far apart and there's not necessarily any connection between the people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it sort of, it speaks to like the archetypes that are buried deeper than just culture, you know? It's just, I don't, I don't quite know how to put it into words, but I mean, there's got to be a reason why all these parallels exist beyond, like, plausible cross-contamination of different cultures. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as we go through more seasons, we're just going to find more and more of these similarities, which will be super cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I'm so looking forward to more of this. Um, So when we get into the Zuni mythology, we learn a little bit more about Kolowisi as a god. Apparently, he was horned and plumed, bringing to mind some of the more southern serpent gods. He was a hero in Zuni mythology because he saved the Zuni people from a great flood. When the flood occurred, they rushed to the top of their sacred mountain to escape the water, but they were dying of thirst and starvation. And they prayed to the six directions and Kolowisi heard their prayers. He came from the west and rested his jaw on top of the mountain, regurgitating fresh water, meat and seeds to feed the Zuni people. Hmm, so there has to be some kind of symbolism in the regurgitation aspect of that story, but it's beyond me. Well, some animals regurgitate to feed their children, so I mean, I guess this is just like a very nurturing type of Mm. deity i suppose yeah okay i can see that like like the bird regurgitating for its uh offspring yeah so do note that this is just purely my interpretation and nothing we actually found in in like any of our sources um 
But yeah, back to our story. When the waters receded, Kolowisi stayed with the Zuni people and he now resides in underground lakes. He's the guardian of fresh water and moves through any body of water, but is especially known to inhabit the Rio Grande. He lives mostly underground, but sometimes surfaces in small lakes or ponds. He is known as a guardian spirit who brings abundance, fertility, prosperity, and health. But people can get on his bad side. And when they do, he can cause floods. So it doesn't seem like all the horned serpents in indigenous American cultures were evil. I mean, this one is pretty benevolent overall. Right. Perhaps I judged a little too quickly earlier. When you look at the horned serpents across North America, most of them were actually peaceful and hunted for their mystical powers, usually held in their horns or a single jewel in their forehead. For example, the Stikvanya, I think I really messed up saying that this episode was going to be easier on pronunciation. Uh, yeah, yeah, that I mean that name just has a very unbalanced um amount of consonants and Yeah, two vowels, two vowels. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's just not enough vowels for all those for that longer word. But yeah, it is what it is. Okay. <laughs> so let's keep Okay, going. so I'll try one more time. Um Stvik Stvikvanya of the Seminole people uh, had a large single horn at the top of his head, which was believed to be an aphrodisiac. People chanted to summon the creature, who could be calmed by their singing, and then he would offer his horn. Speaking of symbolism, I mean... (laughs) Right, right. Um, But less phallic is the Estekvanya, of the Muscogee Creek people, which was an underwater serpent covered with iridescent crystalline scales and a single large crystal in its forehead. It also had horns like a stag. The scales and crystal were used in divination, and the horns were known to be medicinal. Ooh, I get I get the easy name. <laughs> <laughs> then there is the Uctena of the Cherokee, who was a great snake as large as a tree trunk, with horns on its head, a blazing crest on its forehead, and scales that glowed like sparks of fire. Ooh, I like that. It had rings of colour along its length and could only be wounded by shooting it in the seventh ring from its head. The blazing diamond in its forehead could give the owner special powers, but it was difficult to kill the serpent, because the light was so dazzling that most men ran towards the snake instead of away from it. The the Uctena had pestilential breath that would make the hunter sick if he he breathed the tiniest bit of it, and to see the serpent meant death to the hunter's family. Wow, that is definitely a more vicious beast. But it sounds like he's just trying to protect himself. Yeah. And I think that wraps up most of the general horned serpents in the area. So let's move on to a few others. Jumping further north, there is the Angot of the Huron people, who are from what is now called Ontario. The Angot is a monstrous drake that lives in dark, secluded areas like lakes, rivers, deep woods, under rocks, and in caves. It is a large reptile with four legs and is thought to be the source of death, diseases, and all misfortune in the world. 
People who ventured into its territory would get sick and bring plague back to their people. Wow, that's a nasty beastie. Um, but nastier still, sorcerers used to hunt the angot to use its powers against their enemies. They would rub the flesh of the snake on objects such as hair, splinters, animal claws and leaves, and it would be able to penetrate deep into a person, making them ill and causing them great pain. Only the discovery and removal of the object could cure the pain. So now you see why I was saying there are some vicious serpents in these legends. Staying around Lake Ontario, both the Iroquois and Algonquin people believed that there was an entire race of giant serpents in the lake. The Seneca spoke of a single hydra snake called Gaesianditha, which could breathe fire and fly like a bird. This creature would leave a trail of fire across the sky when it ascended to the heavens, which might have been the Seneca way to explain meteors. Mm. There are two legends regarding his birth. One is that Gacienda hatched from serpent eggs. The other is that he came to Earth on a meteor. But are they legends? More recently, Gaciendita has become a local cryptid. In 1805, a group of fishermen saw what they thought was a tipped-over rowboat. They went to rescue it, but were instead greeted by a creature 45 meters long and as wide as a barrel. The fishermen panicked and rowed back to shore, as one would. Um, I know I would. But the monster skimmed the water behind them, taunting them. Mm-hmm. And with, with more and more European influence, the creature has been renamed as Kingstie, a beast that lives off the co coast of Kingston, Ontario. He is said to be over nine meters long, with short legs and a tail. He has become so popular that he is also the source of several hoaxes. In 1934, people filled a barrel with empty bottles to make it float, and attached a head crafted like a dragon. They anchored their monster and attached a long piece of twine to it so they could make it bob from a distance. There were several expeditions to find the creature, but the hoax was not discovered until 1979, when three people claimed responsibility for the prank. So, perhaps the modern Kingstie is just a legend after all. Yeah, maybe. But then there are also people claiming to have spotted him as recently as 2011. However, they could be mistaking the lake sturgeons, which can weigh over 200 pounds and grow longer than two meters, for a lake serpent. So I suppose this will then take us to our final dragon of the area, which is another European-made cryptid, this time in Maryland and the greater Washington, D.C. area. Ooh, yes, okay. An easy name to pronounce and a fun one. The Snallygaster. <laughs> Can we have an easy one for it's... a change? <laughs> it's so good! Right. So this was a bird reptile chimera that originated from the superstitions of early German immigrants. It was first called a Schnellergeist, or quick ghost. It was described as half reptile, half bird, with a metallic beak lined with razor-sharp teeth, occasionally with octopus-like tentacles. Ooh, I like tentacles. Have we had tentacle dragons before? I don't think so. Ooh, interesting. Woohoo! 
Yeah, another first. So some stories say it has a single eye in the center of its forehead and screeches like a train whistle. It lives in deep caves and swoops silently from the sky to pick up and carry off its victims, usually animals or children. The earliest stories claim that this monster sucked the blood of its victims. Seven-pointed stars supposedly kept the Snallygaster at bay and can still be seen painted on local barns. Ooh, that is very cool. I want to go see those barns now. I know. It's it's very interesting. If if we find images, maybe we can tweet them or something, because this is this sounds like fun. Ooh, yeah. I can totally search for some images of those barns. Okay. Awesome. Make it a goal. <laughs> <laughs> so after a while, the tales of the Schnellergeist faded. But the story was revived again in the 19th century to frighten freed slaves, then again to boost newspaper ratings. During these times, the Snallygaster was said to live to be about 20 years old and laid eggs the size of barrels. During Prohibition, moonshiners co-opted the story to scare revenue agents away and explain the sounds that came from their stills at night. In the 1930s, there was widespread panic about the Snallygaster, and people were preparing expeditions to find it. But before these expeditions could take place, the death of the creature was reported in 1932. Supposedly, it drowned in a vat of whiskey mash. Coincidentally, federal prohibition officers accidentally blew up the still before the carcass could be examined. Hmm. That sounds too convenient, maybe. Mm. Accidental, my toe. (laughs) I was going to say something else, but yeah, my toe. Yeah, I mean, doesn't it? Yeah, a little too convenient. One can only hope that another egg survived, so we get more legends from the area. Because how many of our dragons have had tentacles? Or none. Um, so yeah, let's hope for like, oh, a cute baby little Snallygaster. Yeah, mm. I'll adopt that. Um, so this, I suppose, wraps up North America. And then next episode, we'll be flying to South America with perhaps some stops in the Caribbean to look into their serpents and dragons. I cannot wait. So, Mythsters, we will see you again in a fortnight, and until then... We wish you all days like dragons greeting clouds. Later, Mythsters! Hello, hello, Mythsters, and welcome to episode 25 of Mythsterhood of... Travelling Tales. (laughs) An interview is the easiest... This does not bode well, Koji. The easiest thing ever. Um, That you stumble on the word easiest? (laughs) Well, it's a bit meta. (laughs) Did I just lose you? No, I'm here. Okay, okay. No, Um, because I accidentally unplugged my earbuds. Um, That was Mm. a problem. (laughs) <laughs> that could cause an issue <laughs> oh god this does let's, not look well yeah yeah i need some more coffee i have coffee so i'm going to slug them <laughs> 
Why why is my thought only coming out of my mouth halfway? <laughs>